From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Good evening, friends. My name is Joseph Backholm. I'm a senior fellow at Family Research Council. It's my pleasure to be sitting in for Tony today, and I am grateful that you are with us. Great show for you today. A lot of tough news in the world, as you know, in Ukraine. We will be covering it in detail. Before we get into the program, an important opportunity for you to take action on some critical, critically bad legislation that you need to know about. On February 28th, that's Monday, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer will bring up a bill he calls the Women's Health Protection Act, but it's better referred to as the Abortion on Demand Until Birth Act. This legislation takes the language of Roe versus Wade and puts it into federal statute, which means that even if the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, Roe would still be the law. Now, the bill has already passed the House, did so in September, and now needs 60 votes in order to pass the Senate. If the bill did become law and is signed, and President Biden would sign it, it will become the first ever piece of legislation federally legalizing the killing of an unborn child. It is critical that you take action to make sure that your senators do not support this legislation. You can do so by going to frcaction.org slash row to find out how you can help right now. Again, that website is frcaction.org slash row. The Senate will be taking up this bill on Monday, so act now. Today on the program, we are going to hear from a pastor of a Ukrainian church about how people are doing on the ground in Ukraine. How are they responding to the Russian invasion? We'll get to that in the program today. Also, there will be an update from the Freedom Convoy that continues to roll toward Washington, D.C. Are the changes, new changes in CDC guidelines going to affect how they're feeling as they approach the nation's capital? In addition, in our weekly worldview, worldview segment, we're going to have a conversation about tone. Should Christians always try to be winsome? That's the question I'll discuss with David Clausen at the end of the program. Also, less than 48 hours after Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine, the attention in Washington turned to President Biden's nomination of Judge Kintaji Brown Jackson to fill Justice Breyer's seat on the Supreme Court. Thank you very much, Mr. President. I am truly humbled by the extraordinary honor of this nomination. And I am especially grateful for the care that you have taken in discharging your constitutional duty in service of our democracy with all that is going on in the world today. What does her nomination mean for the Supreme Court? And is the timing of this announcement an attempt to distract the country from an ongoing foreign policy crisis? We'll talk about all of that a little bit later. First, the headlines. President Biden has announced sanctions on Russia. He also acknowledged the sanctions the U.S. has imposed upon Russia are going to have an impact on energy prices at home. As I said last week, defending freedom will have cost for us as well and here at home. 
We need to be honest about that. We know they are going to have costs, but what are we going to get in return for those costs? Joining me now to give his assessment of the current situation is U.S. Representative and a member of the Committee on Armed Services, Congressman Pat Fallon. Congressman Fallon, welcome back to the show. Joseph, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, we are thankful for your time. It's a difficult week. What is your sense of how things have developed over the last 48 hours after the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Well, you know, somebody asked me earlier, is could the Ukrainian people, Joseph, be the X factor? And I said, absolutely. I think they are the X factor. Um, Putin was he's counting on a quick and relatively, quote unquote, painless uh, victory. And if it's denied to him and he can't take Kiev, now all indications are they very well may take it um, this weekend. But the, the bigger the price that can be extracted by the Ukrainian people, quite frankly, the better it is for the cause of freedom and liberty around the world. Because this is nothing more than an affront to every country. It's a threat to global, global peace and, and stability. And he's trying to force his will on a sovereign nation. And we need to inflict crippling sanctions. And we cannot relent. Now, let's talk a moment about those sanctions. You've been critical this week of the Biden administration's response. What do you think we should be doing that we are not presently doing? So, yeah, Joseph, a couple of the mistakes that were made by the Biden administration, they delayed lethal aid back in October to the Ukrainians. We should have, uh, and I wrote a letter and I signed on to it back then, encouraging and urging the president to do that. He didn't. He dragged his feet. It's inexplicable. And he didn't outline specific sanctions if Putin was to invade. And I wish he had done that. Uh, Canceling the Keystone Pipeline XL was obviously a huge mistake. Halting energy uh, exploration leases on federal lands and offshore. We never even appointed an ambassador to the Ukraine. Uh, And that's signaling to the world, and particularly the Russians, that you're taking that seriously. So what can we do now? I would encourage the president to immediately sanction the secondary bond market of the Russians. He has done so. He has imposed some sanctions on some banks and some corporations. I would expand that. Some of the oligarchs, he finally, I believe, uh, or is about to sanction Putin himself. But we need to deny them access to the SWIFT, which is the global electronic banking system. Uh, and if we do those things, um, we because what this is amounting to, this is an economic siege, and who's going to win is the person, you know, the other person that blinks first will lose, and Putin's counting on the West to do, to do that. Now, I think a lot of people are wondering, and I include myself in this, what is the reason that the United States would withhold any of our sanctions? It's, it's difficult to imagine a more egregious violation of, of international norms. Why would the U.S. government restrain itself in any way with respect to the response for sanctions against Russia? Joseph, great question, and it's quite frankly the dependency on oil and the dependency on Russian oil. That's why I thought it was a huge strategic mistake a year and almost a year and a half ago uh, when Biden came in to office and, uh, and canceled the Keystone Pipeline. And ham, he was hamstringing America's energy industry. And the Democrats on the Hill were vilifying our own folks that give us such latitude. When you, you talk to Mike Pompeo, he'll tell you, the former Secretary of State, when he would go to other countries and be talking – The energy independence of America gave him so much more latitude because, quite frankly, we had what a lot of other nations needed and wanted. And we are the largest producer, by the way, of uh, largest provider, I should say, of natural gas to Germany. 
we're, we right now we're giving them more or we're selling them more than the Russians. And we should have had a comprehensive plan in place to supply short, mid and long term supply Western Europe with energy. But Biden hasn't done any of that. And if you're an environmentalist, you should be wanting the American uh, workers that are highly skilled with, you know, we have an independent judiciary. We have a rule of law nation. We have a strong environmental lobby. We should be producing this oil and energy, not the Russians and the Iranians and the Venezuelans. Let's talk about that for a moment. We know that there are certainly different policy. The, the Trump administration and the Biden administration has taken have taken very different approaches when it comes to domestic energy production. How different is that difference? How much energy were we producing two years ago that we aren't now? Well, we were energy independent then. We, we literally could supply ourselves with our needs, and we, in theory, didn't have to import any energy at all. We had so much natural gas. And a lot of it is techno- technological advances. I mean, fracking was a, a quote, pardon the pun, it was a seismic event uh, for the energy industry. And the liquefied natural gas and being in the pipelines for it. And we've got to remember Canada as well. So we, we had a, a vast resource that we're final, finally harnessing. Because I can remember as a kid, the dream of American energy independence was more like a pipe dream. And then we actually achieved it. And then Joe Biden purposely fumbled the ball, catering to a far-left uh, environmental lobby. It, it makes no sense whatsoever, and now we're paying the price. That's why gas prices are, and energy prices are up. And if we truly do sanction Russia with everything we have, as you just said in a previous question, that's going to include not buying any more of the oil. And that's going to cost it, – it, it's going to take a little bit of time for us to produce more uh, energy to and oil to get those prices down. If the Biden administration were to desire to change that and get back to our potential for energy production, how long would it take us to get back to the levels of what we were producing two years ago? That's a great question. I would say it's not going to be days or weeks. It's going to be months. Right. And uh, so there's going to be a pinch at the pump. What he should have done, if he had just done nothing, if he had just gone to watch Netflix and not messed with President Trump's energy policies, we'd be so much better off right now. But he did. And Putin is not stupid. Putin is cunning, and he's deliberate, and he's a chess player, and he's thinking eight, nine, ten moves ahead. He figured we were going to have kind of you know weak to middling uh, sanctions, and we didn't disappoint. The Biden administration didn't disappoint him, and he's he he thinks the West will blink. The Nordstrom two pipeline, okay, great. The Germans put it on hold. Well, it wasn't. It was going to take up another six months of regulatory um, hoops for it to be online anyway. So, is it, have, have they done anything? If they stay in the Ukraine, the Germans should permanently uh, cancel that project. A few days ago, John Kerry, of course, President Biden's climate czar, raised some eyebrows when he said he hoped that Putin would, quote, stay on track in the war on climate change and that he was hoping environmental concerns would influence what Putin uh, was to do. And, of course, most of us think that's ridiculous, but... Is there any sense that this administration doesn't actually want to produce more energy? And is there any possibility that the wartime decisions we're making right now are actually being impacted by environmental concerns? Uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong. Well, I couldn't believe I saw Adam Schiff on television when asked about whether or not he could support more energy being produced in the United States. He said, well, we don't want to upset our climate 
change protection policy. What in the world do they, do they want hundreds of millions of people to freeze over a winter? I mean, we, we can't, the renewables are not up to snuff, okay, for where we, they cannot provide us the energy that we need right now as a, as a human right. They can't do it. They can't fuel the economy. And if they can possibly 30, 40, 50 years from now, it may never happen. So let's live within the bounds of reality, shall we? Fossil fuels are needed, and they are essential, and they are American security uh, concern. Our top priority should be this. And now we've seen what the, what the Russians are doing, and it is a, in large measure about energy, uh, amongst many other things. Uh, and I just can't believe we're, you know, we're, we're having these discussions with Democrats when they want to talk about, in theory, they're, like, they're looking like for the professor vote, in the university. And I think a lot of Americans uh, would really do really scratch their heads at the idea that it's environmental concerns that would drive our wartime policy. It's just a strange uh, evaluation of priorities at a moment where everyone recognizes that the, that the world is truly in crisis. Congressman Pat Fallon, Thank, thank you so much for joining us today, and thanks for all you're doing for us in Washington and in Texas. Appreciate you being with us. Thanks, Joseph. Thank you, sir. God bless. God bless you. Now, coming up, we're going to get an on-the-ground report. How is all of this affecting the people of Ukraine? I think we know in some senses, but Archbishop Boris Gudyak is a pastor of a Ukrainian church. He used to live in Ukraine. He knows a lot of people. He knows the situation. He'll tell us how they're doing when we come back. Stay with us. Are you struggling to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. The Stand on the Word reading plan takes you through daily scripture in an engaging manner to help you stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, We'll text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. With the current division and confusion of our culture, it is so important for Christians to root ourselves in the truth of God's word so that we are prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. For this purpose, Family Research Council launched the Center for Biblical Worldview, the Center applies the Bible and the historical teachings of the Church to current issues. This helps Christians understand and live by a biblical worldview, know why Scripture must be authoritative, and equips believers to advance and defend the faith in workplaces, schools, communities, and the public square. The experts at the Center address and provide resources on issues like religious liberty, abortion, voting, marriage, and sexuality. To access free resources like the Biblical Worldview series, go to frc.org worldview. To get highlights of the latest work of the Worldview Fellows, including blogs, interviews, and publications, sign up at frc.org subscriptions. At Family Research Council, it is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. 
With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've decided to be proactive to make sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. That is why we've created a tech subscription platform. If we get canceled, you can stay informed and still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get special alerts on the biggest stories of the day. You can stay informed with just a simple text. We want you to be able to stay connected with like-minded community and to always have access to our content. Stay connected and informed. Just text STAND to 67742. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm. Sitting in for Tony today, I want to remind you that the website is TonyPerkins.com where you can watch this and every episode on demand. TonyPerkins.com Everyone around the world has watched with heavy hearts as Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, launched an unprovoked full-scale invasion of its neighbor, Ukraine. The biggest military action in Europe since the end of World War II. How can we as Christians here in America, far from the conflict, be keeping our Ukrainian brothers and sisters in our prayers? That's what we're going to discuss with the Metropolitan Archbishop of Philadelphia of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, Boris Gudiak. And he joins me now to share. Boris, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Tony. Thank you. And all thanks to all listeners who are, are praying for Ukraine. Well, we are praying for Ukraine. And tell us, if you can, what have you been hearing from the people on the ground in Ukraine as they react to this? Well, I spent a couple of weeks uh, at the beginning of the month of Ukraine. I'm coming to you from Paris. Uh, I serve kind of as the uh, response international relations of our church. And right now I'm trying to explain uh, in different capitals what is going on. Uh, there is uh, you know, a great, great humanitarian crisis. Uh, the battle is very strong. The Russian army has about 10 times as much resources as the Ukrainian army, but the Russian soldiers really are not motivated. Uh, some of them who have been captured today uh, have confessed that three days ago, they didn't know what they were going to be up, up to. Right. Uh, they were kept in the dark. These are young guys who are being manip manipulated by a political system. Right. Archbishop, we are having some communications problems a little bit, and we know that uh, we are getting for you from Russia. Paris. There it goes. Okay. I think we're having some connection challenges, and we're going to try to get those resolved. Uh, as you heard, he is coming to us from Paris, and he also was just speaking there about the um, the conversations with our Rus with Russian soldiers and what are they being told, even as well. It sounds like we have you back, Archbishop. I, I hear you well. Okay. Well, we were having yeah, some. Uh, you that. were breaking up a bit for us. If you could, uh, how would you describe the mood of the Ukrainian people right now? Is it resolve? Is it fear? Is it despair? How are people reacting? It's it's a mix of all of the above. Uh, 
people are tough in Ukraine. You know, if an inch of snow falls in Washington, there's a run on toilet paper. Uh, Ukrainians, uh, you know, have had a very hard history. 15 million people were killed in the 20th century by the totalitarian regimes in world wars. Uh, Russia has been at war with Ukraine for the last eight years. This is just an escalation, and uh, it's become a comprehensive war. But uh, so people are tough, but, you know, people don't want to die. People are afraid for their children, for their families, for their homes. And so already in the first 36 hours, there's a big flood of refugees moving to the different Western uh, borders of Ukraine. Uh, the borders are clogged. Uh, there's there's uh, lineups of cars for 15 miles. Right. Uh, people walking to the border, carrying small children. Um, war is devastating. Uh, tonight, uh, there's fear on the capital. Putin out the Ukrainian government and put in a pu- puppet government. Yes. Um, so Ukrainian Catholics, all, one thing that I, sh- I want to emphasize is that all the Christian confessions and the Jews and the Muslims are together against this war. Yes. They're all together. Uh, there's this all Ukrainian Council of Churches and Religious Organizations that has, has been working together for 25 years on yes. social issues. And they really, they really, you know, speak in unison on, on this one. Yeah. Uh, Ukrainian Catholic Church, every time in the last 200 years that a Russian government, Tsarist, communist, or Putinist, has taken over Ukrainian territory, the Ukrainian Catholic Church has been wiped out is a visible legal structure. So we have great concern. We have faith in the Lord. We've been wiped out, but we've come to life again. And uh, we pray and we ask people to pray, to be informed. And you're doing great work by, you know, explaining these things. And three, to help uh, regarding the humanitarian needs. And, and we that is exactly the purpose of having you on is so people can know how to do this. Another question just about how people are reacting. Ukraine is holding off Russia alone at this point. Is there any sense by the Ukrainian people that they have been abandoned by the rest of the world? There is. There is. There's, there's quite a bit of quiet bitterness. Uh, there's a sense that, uh, you know, Western European countries, especially Germany, um, Hungary, Italy have kind of sold out. Uh, um, uh, Cyprus, Cyprus is a place where a lot of Russian oligarchs have their ill-begotten money in banks. Um, And uh, they really welcome the sanctions coming from the U.S., but say too little and too late. Much more should be done. What are you telling people to do for those who are watching and listening right now who desperately want to help in practical ways, if possible? Do you have any suggestions? Well, prayer, I believe, is very practical. It, it brought the Soviet Union down without a war. Nobody thought the Soviet Union would fall apart. It was a superpower armed to its teeth with nuclear weapons, and then it fell apart. It was a grace of God. It was a miracle. So pray for that. Pray for the suffering. Pray, for, pray that the soldiers, the defenders have courage. 
They're incredible, these soldiers. See, the Russian army is not well motivated. People, not people in Russia generally don't want war with Ukraine. The Ukrainian army knows that this is a fight uh, for life or death, a uh, fight of life or death for not only their country, but their families. And, uh, you know, it was a devastating day for the Russians. A thousand Russian soldiers were killed today. Uh, the casualties are very high. Even though Ukrainian army is armed, uh, you know, more, much more modestly. Uh, so prayer, informing people. We got 15 seconds. And uh, donate. Donate to humanitarian causes. There, you know, if you look up on uh, our, our Cherpurki has, has a site. Good yak. Sadly, we are out of time. We do need to get back with you because I know there's so much more to say, but we really appreciate your time here and we will be praying for you. We are going to talk about Biden's nomination to the Supreme Court when we come back. Stay with us. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media, even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In Scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets, and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. This week has certainly been a momentous news week. Less than 48 hours into the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Biden administration decided to unveil his pick to replace the retiring U.S. Supreme Court Associate Justice Stephen Breyer. Today of all days, at age 83, the liberal Breyer is the oldest justice currently serving on the court. Who did President Biden pick as his nominee? Well, FRC's Catherine Beck Johnson, our research fellow for legal and policy studies, is here to tell us all about it. Catherine is also one of our attorneys on staff. Catherine, welcome back to the show. 
Thanks for having me, Joseph. Happy to be here this evening. Well, we're happy to have you. Tell us about his nominee. What do we need to know? So he nominated Judge Jackson. She's currently a judge at the D.C. circuit level, which is often known as the court right below the Supreme Court. And this was a very clear radical left pick by by President Biden. You know, he had several other nominees who were much more moderate on his shortlist, but he chose who the dark money radical woke groups really wanted, which is Judge Jackson. She has a record of being very much a partisan on the district. She was previously on the district court before she was elevated to the circuit court. And she has actually only had two opinions on the circuit court level. So we're judging based on a lot of her district court opinions. She has been very frequently reversed by the district, by I'm sorry, the circuit court, which is by no means a conservative court. So we're very concerned by this nomination. Now, of course, she's being nominated to replace Justice Breyer. Is she significantly different, do you think, than he would be? Would there be any impact to the balance of the court? She actually clerked for Justice Breyer, so you could say she was made in his mold, but I would say yes, Justice Breyer is much more moderate, especially on issues of religious liberty, where he tended to ride the middle a lot. Here, Judge Jackson has sided with every single opportunity she had, she would strike down any of Trump's executive orders. While she was in practice before she was a judge, she actually worked on an amicus brief for NARAL, arguing that pro-lifers did not have any free speech rights outside abortion clinics. So it's very clear that her goal is to get to the policy end that she wants. She also shielded Hillary Clinton's aide from having to explain why he sent work public official emails via his private email account. So Justice Breyer, while I disagreed with him frequently, and most people with our views of the law did, he very much tried to toe the line of I'm a neutral judge and I'm just reading the law, where I think with Judge Jackson, it's very clear that she's trying to get to a policy goal. Now, not the most important question, not the most significant issue, but what's your reaction to the timing of this announcement? Now, President Biden did say that he was going to uh, make his announcement by the end of February, and that's where we are. But of course, we w- the world went to war in that time. Do you think there's any sense in which this is an attempt to kind of change, be a distraction, or is this just an acknowledgement that we have to carry on despite the outbreak of war in Europe? I think you could definitely read it as that. If you remember, Justice Breyer's retirement was leaked before he officially wanted to announce it. And that was when Omicron was surging and President Biden was doing horribly in the polls. And then suddenly we had the news of Justice Breyer retiring. Now, with the outbreak of the war that's going on in Ukraine, many eyes are on Biden blaming him, talking about how he has done nothing but encourage this war based on his actions. And now suddenly we have a Supreme Court pick. Now, like you said, he did promise that he would have a nominee by the end of February, so it's not terribly surprising, but I find it interesting that he waited until just about the last day possible. It's almost as if he wanted to keep the news in his back pocket in case he needed it after a poor news cycle. What's the early reaction from the Senate to her nomination? What kind of reception will she be receiving? 
Well, Senator McConnell sent out a very fair statement saying that, you know, he's open to meeting with her. He's looking forward to reviewing her judicial philosophy, meeting with her, hearing her out, though he has not been impressed based on what he has seen so far as her opinions at the district level and her merely two opinions at the circuit level. He did oppose her nomination at the circuit level, so he doesn't know if much has changed, but he is willing to give her a fair shake, which is much more than the Senate Democrats would say when any of President Trump's three nominees have been nominated. So the tone is very much, we will be respectful. We will honor her dignity. She seems like a lovely person. This is nothing personal, but from what we know, we are not impressed, but we will give her a fair interview. We've seen some contentious confirmation uh, battles in the Senate in recent years, most notably Justice Kavanaugh. Any reason to think we will see a repeat of something like that? I don't think so. Those games are usually played by the Senate Democrats, you know, as going all the way back to Justice Thomas, how he was treated incredibly unfairly, going to Justice Kavanaugh, who was also attacked. We see that's very much a pattern from the left, not from the right. This also isn't going to tip the balance of the court. This is replacing a liberal justice for a liberal justice. Like I said earlier, she is much more to the left of Breyer, but she is still replacing a Democratic appointee. So we don't expect there to be those same games from the right. There never are. Catherine, in about 15 seconds, what's the timeline for this process now? Well, I saw earlier that they are hoping to have her confirmed by April. So we will stay tuned throughout March for to hear about her meeting with the various senators and then possibly a confirmation by April. Catherine Beck-Johnson, thank you so much for the update. Thanks for having me. Enjoy your weekend. You too. Don't go anywhere. The American Freedom Convoy 2022 rolls in next. Joshua Yoder of the U.S. Freedom Flyers will join us from the road as they head to Washington. Stay with us. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. 
In Scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Attention university students. Are you looking for an internship that will help you grow as a Christian leader and allow you to positively influence the culture? Then Family Research Council's internship program is for you. FRC's life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program will prepare and equip you for the next step in your professional journey. You'll enjoy a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training. All of these offerings were created to aid you in your personal and professional development. As an intern, you will have the opportunity to work side-by-side with our experts in policy, communications, event planning, and more. The real-world experience you gain will prepare you to pursue a career of influence and make a difference wherever God calls you. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. Well, the trucker-led people's convoy. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. And the trucker-led people's convoy rolls on, continuing its progress toward Washington, D.C. for a peaceful protest of vaccine mandates and government overreach. There is some breaking news on this subject this afternoon. The CDC says that masks should be optional in places where the hospitals are not under strain. Is this enough? Joining me for today's special Defending Freedom Convoy segment is Joshua Yoder of the U.S. Freedom Fighters. Joshua, welcome to Washington Watch. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for taking some time to join us. Tell us how life on the road is. Well, yeah, it's just incredible. You know, from where, where we started in uh, near Barstow, California, you know, there was a there was a massive showing there. Thousands of people came out to see us off. You know, so many patriotic Americans coming together, Republican, Democrat, um, you know, gay, straight, you know, all different nationalities and uh, and races. It was amazing to see all these Americans coming together. You know, this is the way our country should look. Um, you know, these people aren't there. There's no infighting. Everything is peaceful, law abiding. It's just it's just incredible. What kind of reaction are you getting as you drive across the country, drive by other cars, interact with people when you stop? Well, uh, right now, obviously, the convoy is growing by leaps and bounds just with normal vehicles, both trucks and, and uh, you know, normal citizens joining in, in many vans in their cars. And uh, every time we stop, it's just an incredible showing of support. People are showing up with food and water and different supplies. We currently have, I believe, five semi loads of, uh, of supplies that people have donated, you know, for the truckers. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it was uh, we, we were in um, uh, where was it? I believe on the border of New Mexico last night and probably about a thousand people showed up. You know, they brought their grills. Uh, they had uh, bonfires waiting for us. And it was it was amazing. Now, you heard the news, I hope, at the beginning, or at least I'll repeat it. The CDC now says that masks should be optional in places where the hospitals are not under strain. What's your reaction to that news? Well, considering all the studies that have been put out over the past uh, year, year and a half, uh, saying how ineffective masks are, I think that's um, I think it, it's too little too late, but I'm glad that they're realizing that now. 
Now, your involvement is not just part of this convoy. You're actually part of a lawsuit as well. Could you give us an update on your case and tell us what you're trying to accomplish there? Sure. So the organization that I'm with, that's usfreedomflyers.org, flyers with a Y. Uh, it was airline pilots who stood up back in August and said, you know, we're not going to take the mandates at the airlines. Uh, quickly grew beyond pilots to all, all airline employees and then went to greater transportation. We have truckers, we have sea shipping, you know, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, a lot of different groups that have come together to push back against the federal mandates. Um, on November 22nd, we filed a federal lawsuit against the Biden administration regarding the federal contractor clause of the vaccine mandates. And, uh, and challenging the, constitution, uh, the constitutionality of, of the mandates. And uh, so that, that's currently in court. Um, most airlines have backed off um, for now. We currently have four airlines who still have vaccine mandates in place, even though the, there's been a, a, a pause placed on, on the federal vaccine mandate. Uh, so we're now turning focus to those uh, four individual companies as well. We'll be bringing lawsuits in the coming weeks. So with this convoy... What are your expectations? What are you hoping to accomplish? And then also, what, how optimistic are you that, you are go- that we are all going to be successful in that effort? Well, first of all, we're going to be successful when we all stand together as Americans. You know, that's really where our strength lies is when we come together and, and, stop, and stop dividing, uh, dividing ourselves among party lines and, and, you know, race and ethnicity. You know, this is exactly what these deep state players want, uh, because when we're divided, you know, we, we can't unite against a common foe. And uh, what's really cool about this convoy is that it's drawing national attention. And so we're able to put out messaging about, you know, what the issues are in this country and, and, you know, what we're asking for. And I think what you understand or what most people understand is the average American, you know, uh, has has we have very similar beliefs. And and the media would would have us believe that they were all divided, that that we're infighting. And that just is not the case. I can tell you that on the road today, um, every single overpass was just packed with, you know, easily hundreds on most overpasses. And there was one that had probably about a thousand people on it you know, with flags and signs, like all these different people coming together in solidarity, standing with the truckers. And uh, ultimately what we hope to, to achieve out of this is to, um, to end, the, end the federal state of emergency, which the government is using to essentially circumvent the Constitution and, and bring in these, you know, vaccine and mass mandates un, under that as well. Joshua, tell people before I let you go, is there a way to track your progress so people can see if you're going to be coming through their town? Absolutely. You can go to thepeoplesconvoy.org and you can click on the routing there. You can see where we're going to be on the overnights. Um, you can follow all the linked social media as well, which will tell you exactly where we are and what we're doing and how you can get involved. Thepeoplesconvoy.org and Joshua Yoder, thank you for being a great example of doing something when you're frustrated. And thanks for your time today as well. Thank you for having me on. Have a great day. Now... For the end of our program today, it is time for our weekly worldview conversation. And today, we're going to talk about talking. What tone should Christians use when discussing difficult topics? Should Christians always try to be winsome when talking about difficult issues? That's the title of an article I wrote this week that you can find at frcblog.com. And it's also the subject of our conversation with David Clausen, FRC's director of the Center for Biblical Worldview, who joins me in studio. David, welcome back to the show. Hey, great to be here and in studio with you as well. Well, it's good to see you. Now, I'm going to start off. Why do you, why do we as a country, why do you think we have such a hard time having constructive conversations? Well, Great question. I think we, we do have uh, difficult conversations, and honestly, this whole conversation on whether Christians should be winsome or not, I know you and I spend some time on Twitter. This is something kind of in the 
Christian bubble is something that's discussed a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before every election, this topic seems to come up. I think, you know, we we, surely we live in polarized times. Uh, People have opinions. They want to voice them. And so I think especially as Christians, this is a topic we do need to consider. How do we engage in the public square uh, with people who agree with us, but especially with people who disagree with us? So what is the starting point? What should Christians be thinking about when we when we think about talking? What what's the baseline for how a Christian should approach the way we interact with other people? Yeah, you know, let me give you just a couple of verses. Some that you mentioned actually in your your yeah. really helpful blog this week's. Um, some that are just other verses in the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, my go-to verse, Joseph, when I think of how Christians should engage politically, is right there in Ephesians four. Uh, whatever the issue is, abortion, sexuality, vaccine mandates, I want to speak the truth in love. Uh, the, the context of that passage is Paul is talking to a group of Christians there in Ephesus who were kind of struggling to to get along. You have Jews, you have Gentiles, how are we going to get along? He says we need to speak the truth in love. Another passage is Galatians 4, uh, 22. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Paul's writing to another church, and he says uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, um, and he goes on. I think these are all things that ought to characterize us as Christians. Uh, at the end of the day, Joseph, we want to be like Jesus. First Thessalonians 4, uh, 3 uh, says, you know, people always want to know what God's will for their life is. And actually, Paul says in that uh, epistle, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. Right. So the starting point is we want to be like Jesus when it comes to everything we do in life, right. specifically in the conversations we have with our friends and neighbors. Yeah. A lot of people will make the argument, and I will include myself in this because I would make this argument. Um, Colossians 4, six. let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So gracious, seasoned with salt. Does that mean that the outcome of all of our conversation should be other people's happiness? Absolutely not. And I think uh, while that is clear that our speech ought to be seasoned with salt and graciousness, Paul elsewhere will say, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. So I think that's talking the posture, that's talking about the attitude. Mm -hmm. Uh, but think about, you know, I talked about this earlier in the day, the Great Commission. You know, we know about that as the key evangelism text. But Jesus also said that we ought to teach people everything he commanded. And Jesus talked about a lot of issues that are increasingly controversial, uh, issues related to marriage, issues related to sexuality, issues related to life. And you're going to have conversations about yeah. those issues that will certainly not make people happy and feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Right. Does that mean we shouldn't have those conversations? It, it, I don't think yeah. so at all. Now, I want to get into how Jesus talked to, pe- to people specifically <laughs> in that example. But before I go there, is there any sense in which the high value we now place on winsomeness is cultural as much as it is biblical? Because I haven't been everywhere in the world, but I've been some places in the world. And you go to Latin America or you go to Israel and there, you know— their expectations for how you deal with people in, you know, in public are very different than ours. And they don't have to be mad at people to be what we would consider, uh, according to our kind of sensibilities, would be pretty harsh treatment. Or more straightforward or candid or blunt. Or frankly, New York City, right? (laughs) New York City is very different than, you know, Mobile, Alabama. That's true, which is so interesting to me that kind of in our sphere, the social conservative Christian world, it seems in the last couple of election cycles, there's been this massive emphasis on civility. Mm -hmm. There was another Christian group that in the lead up to the last election published a 90-page document uh, about, and a huge part of it in the title was, how do we be civil? 
leading up to the election. And of course, we should aim to be civil. We've talked about that. But I think increasingly, Joseph, and I want to search my spirit, make sure I'm not saying things about brothers and sisters that are not fair, but I think increasingly people are kind of almost hiding behind this idea that we need to be civil because they kind of don't want to talk about issues that might be controversial. Because they don't want to have the conflict? I think so. I think people are uh, increasingly uh, uh, nervous or allergic to confrontational uh, conversations. And I think it's, this is a good moment in the conversation to point out the fact that we are not advocating for a lack of civility, no. right? But let's get into Jesus' example, right? We're Christians. We're supposed to live like Jesus. How did Jesus talk to people? And one of the points I make in this article, and again, you can find it if you want all the details at frcblog.com. Um, and one of the points I make that I believe is true from Scripture, what we see in his example is that his tone, quote-unquote, changes depending on who he's talking to. And there are great examples of, you know, the woman, the woman at the well, the way he dealt with the thief mm-hmm. on the cross. He showed tremendous kindness, tremendous empathy, tremendous gentleness. And you could apply the term winsomeness to these interactions with people who are caught in sin doing terrible things, right? But... There's a, there is a big but to this because there's other conversations that are also part of Scripture where when he was talking to the Pharisees, he had all manner of insults for them. Um, he actually referred to the Canaanite people as dogs. He, re, he, re, referred to, um, he referred to the Pharisees as a brood of vipers, as, li, as liars, as sons of your father, the devil, right? These could all easily be characterized as insults. Does that mean that Jesus was sinning? Absolutely not. And as Christians, we affirm the sinlessness of well, Christ. Of course, yes. It's, it's, a, it's a silly question, but what, right. so what are we to learn from that? I think we need to realize that the context is really important, as well as the significance and urgency of the issue. So just knowing we were going to have a, a conversation right. about this, just if I looked at other examples in the Bible, just let me give you two or three. Um, Paul, he's writing to the Galatians, mm-hmm. and the, he's really worried about this church that he loves, um, but it seems that they're following a different gospel. And he writes in the uh, epistle to the Galatians uh, in chapter 3, uh, there in verse 11, he says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. That's not really, you know, PG-friendly yes. uh, uh, language right there. Um, in uh, uh, John the Baptist, he confronts Herod for marrying his sister-in-law, and he says, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Um, Another one, Amos chapter 4, verse 1, this is a minor prophet speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel that had fallen into polytheism and all sorts of uh, sins. He says, he calls the the, the women there, he says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Uh, So I think what, and then Jesus, when he's talking to Peter, uh, when at at that uh, incident where they're talking about Caesarea Philippi, where he told them that he had to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die, Peter tried to rebuke him. He says, get behind me, Satan. And the reason Jesus was so strong in his uh, address to Peter is he saw what Peter was doing was acting satanic and setting a bad example for the other disciples. So I think there, the lesson to draw from this, there are some issues that the urgency of that issue is so important that we need to get right to the point. We, we don't need to worry yeah. about beating around the bush, that, that there's a level of urgency that uh, requires a, a quick, immediate, yeah. straightforward response. When we talk about, and to agree with you, and to, you know, I, I see everything through kind of my lens of being a parent in some ways, and that, that informs how I think about a lot of things. But when I'm talking to my kids, I 
generally try to pursue gentleness. But there have been moments where they've been told something many times, and I feel like they're not quite getting it. And if I continue to just like speak in a calm tone of voice, what I'm concerned about is they don't understand that I'm not communicating to them the urgency of the situation and the seriousness of the situation, right? If they are playing in the car, they're playing in the street and there are cars approaching, I don't gently coax them out of the street, right? And in some ways, I think a lack of urgency when the situation is urgent is its own kind of neglect and frankly could be evil. And that's honestly part of the conversation we're having about what's going on in Ukraine. Ukraine, is our response proportionate? So, which leads to the question, is it possible to say hurtful things in love? Absolutely, Joseph. And in the where this takes place in the political context, every election you'll hear, you know, good Christian groups that believe the Bible's God's word, issues with sexuality or the life issue, they're not as forthright as I would say they ought to be because they, they don't want to be controversial. They don't want to be perceived as unloving. There are issues, right. though, that we deal with in the public square on sexuality, yeah. on life and on other issues yeah. that require us to be clear forthright and direct. And the thing Jesus did perfectly that we do not do perfectly is he always communicated his truths, albeit forcefully and sometimes harshly. He was always doing it out of love. He was trying to get their attention. He was calling them to repentance, calling them to a better way. Now, the problem with us, of course, is we often speak harshly, not out of love, but out of an opposite motivation. We want to hurt, we want to harm that person. And that's where we really have to learn that whatever we say, the truth in love has to be motivated by love. Otherwise, it's not probably actually the truth. David, thanks again for your time. Thank you, Joseph. Friends, that is our program for the day. We appreciate you being with us today. Truth in love at all times. And remember, whatever's happening in your Ukraine or your life, fear God and nothing else. We'll see you next time here on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family and freedom, visit tonyperkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.